Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And before we rebroadcast our Wednesday live show, which was September 29th, uh, where we featured um, BJ uh, talking about the 55th anniversary of the Black Panther Party and the uh, reunion, which is um, kicks off today with an exhibit at Joyce Gordon Gallery and uh, continues throughout the the whole month of October with uh, special programming on October 22nd through 24th. Uh, we then speak to um, Brother Jalil Mutakim, uh, political prisoner, prisoner of war, uh, as well as prison abolition activist and co-founder of Jericho. Uh, he joins us to talk about the International Tribunal, which is going to be hybrid. It's going to be both in person at the Betty Shabazz Malcolm X um, Center in New York, as well as virtually. And uh, then we have an update on Hurricane Ida with Nana Sula Spirit and Baba Malik Rahim out of New Orleans. And we close with a special, really special conversation with um, uh, Jerome Preston Bates, uh, the writer uh, of the uh, Electric Lady, the ladies in the life of Jimmy. Hendricks, and we are also joined in the studio by um, members of the cast, um, among them uh, Rosalie Brooks and uh, Genia Lear Morgan and another member of the cast. And that particular production is tonight, this afternoon, <laughs> depending on where you are. Uh, if you're here in California, it's 5 p.m. Pacific time if you are on the East Coast. It's 8 p.m. Eastern time. And it's a free main stage production, um, which is um, sponsored by uh, Black Repertory Group Theater in Berkeley. So, uh, But I wanted to remind people that today the uh, the 2021 um Um, Hushite Nubian Heritage Conference has kicked off, and it is October 1st through 3rd online completely. And um, the uh, tagline is Preserving an African Legacy. And um, it's um, really impressive. So definitely want to make sure that people know about that. Again, Hushite Nubian Heritage Conference, Preserving an African Legacy, kicked off um, this morning early if you're on um, the West Coast, and um, it'll be finished just as early <laughs> if you're on the West Coast. And if you're on the East Coast, um, it won't be as early. And, uh, again, it's through Sunday, and the website is kushitenubian.org, K-U-S-H-I-T-E, N-U-B-I-A-N. So without further ado, I am going to play that uh, recording uh, 
show <laughs> from from Wednesday. And uh, if you don't get a chance to hear everything, uh, you can always go online and listen. You can listen at the website for the show. You can also listen at WandasPicks.com. You can also listen in iTunes, a free uh, upload. And you can follow us uh, so you don't miss anything. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy. Come together now. Come together now. Africans of the diaspora. Africans on the continent, I say. Come together now. They sing and rap And I feel myself caught up in the beat All goose pimply and possessed And they are pumping their hands in the air A sea of bobbing heads bouncing to the beat And I'm unselfconsciously bobbing right there with them I closed my eyes and was transported in time to the 60s. I see us in dashikis and bell-bottom pants, carved wooden fists on gold chains around our necks. I feel the wooden floor sway and shiver as a hundred feet respond to James Brown's shouts of, uh, uh, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud And then an unbridled well burst through my consciousness Tugging me back to the here and to the now I shake my head and flow into the nod of that hip-hop beat I look around me and see no bright Bordered dashikis, but the red and black robes of the Messiah. I see beadwork and conga cloth wrapped round the necks and shoulders of young black men and young black women. I see beaded braids and locks and shaven heads and hats embroidered with cowrie shells and paint. I hear shouts. Of pride in Kisakuma, Kiswahili, Kichaga, Kimeru, Kigurese, and even French. It feels like a like a church meeting, y'all. A blues hall, a Panther PE meeting wrapped all in one. And I suddenly feel like I'm gonna cry, or grin, or do both. With the absolute wonder of it all, I squeeze Pete's shoulder hard as our emotions meet in complete agreement. We thrust our chins out in the defiant stance of bygone days, and I can tell he is thinking the same thing that implodes my mind. That panther spirit ain't dead, no way. It just moved round the corner, crossed the ocean, and is still 
well and very much alive right here in an East African village. <laughs> uh, that was Mama C. That panther spirit is alive and well in East Africa. And we are so excited to have uh, BJ joining us um, to talk about the 55th anniversary Black Panther Party reunion. Good morning. How are you, BJ? I'm doing great. Good morning to everyone. I hope everybody's doing well. <laughs> great, yeah. So tell, tell us about, you know, the 55th anniversary um, uh, reunion and uh, about your museum. And why don't you first start talking to us a little bit about yourself and your um, uh, your legacy uh, within this great Black Panther Party um, uh, for self-defense. Okay. Well, I joined the party when I was 17. I joined the East Oakland chapter of the Black Panther Party that just opened. Um, I was influenced by the Free Huey rallies. Um, I was a student at Laney College during the summer period of 68, and I would hear the chants coming from the Oakland Alameda Courthouse, and I would go over there and listen to some of the speeches. And during that summer, I joined the Black Panther Party. I worked on the first free breakfast program for school children uh, at St. Augustine Church, and we brought that concept back to East Oakland and opened up three breakfast programs um, throughout East Oakland. Uh, later on, I was transferred to national headquarters at, on 1048 Peralta. I worked directly under the Central Committee, which is the governing body of the Black Panther Party. I uh, was assigned a different assignments to work, like uh, organized on Merritt College campus, organized on Grove Street College campus. Um, 1971, um, the Central Committee made me an aide to Hugh P. Newton, so I went to court with him and worked with him and his family uh, from 71, 72. 72, I was drafted in to working on Bobby Seale's campaign when he ran for mayor of Oakland. I ran Bobby Seale's main campaign office on 53rd and his 14th. Um, later, I worked at the Oakland Community School. In 1974, I left the Black Panther Party because of internal conflicts. I later... I've always been a Panther, but in 1996, a group of Panthers in Sacramento organized a group called It's About Time. And our purpose at that time was to organize the 30th year celebration of the Black Panther Party. So we did that. It was held at Jack London, in, Jack London Square in Oakland. And the turnout was so tremendous that the energy demanded us to stay together. So it's about time came into being in 1995, and we've been in existence to the day. So we've gone through a process. We started out with a newsletter to all alumni party members. And then in 1998, uh, me and uh, another guy named Benny Harris put together uh, the It's About Time Black Panther Party website, which to this date has over 3 million hits on it. Uh, so we started organizing, having reunions, and started organizing with different groups of Panthers throughout the country. So uh, we've been doing that for the last 25 years. Uh, we have to do the 50th. Uh, we have traveling, traveling exhibits that travel throughout, um, uh, throughout 
the world to Africa to Portugal to Australia to New Zealand, different places like that, where we have support groups in those countries. So we've been pretty active um, putting together our history because the history of the Black Panther Party still is unwritten. And so through that whole process, I started collecting articles and items, and it turned out to be a big archive as it is today. We have the online website at It's About Time. Um, uh, dot com, and we have uh, our present website uh, called BPP 55th Year Celebration dot com, and you can go to that website and get up to date information about dates and times and locations of events for Black Panther Party History Month, which is happening October 1st. So I've been active with the party, I don't know, for all my life. So. Um, I'm an archivist. I have information. Um, you know, that's my job is sort of like information officer. <laughs> wow! Thank you so much. Um, you know, for you know, for that that rundown of the history, and and so, um, what is it about you know this organization, this this institution that? still resonates so strongly um, that, uh, you know, when people come together, um, you know, the elders and then the youth, there's just so much power in, in those moments. Um, you know, so what are the lessons? I mean, people know, uh, they might not know what the different, um, you know, what the different points are, but people know about this 10-point program. You mentioned feeding our children. There was a school um, you know, we talk about nation building. Um, you know, you could look at the Black Panther Party for Self Defense, and um, just wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, sort of why it has such resonance and 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 the lessons learned, um, and because you you're really um, uh, a person who you know in your in your organizing really sort of lift of the voices of those people who are not necessary the names out front, the leadership, but the foot soldiers, you know, the people doing the work. And a lot of those people doing the work are the women, were the women. And, um, and yeah, and, and so in your organizing and in the museum that you have, you know, put together, you know, with your wife, um, you know, we, we, we get a chance to sort of, uh, and also in your programs and exhibits, we get a chance to meet a lot of those real unsung heroes and heroines. Right. So, you know, um, what brings us all together is the revolutionary struggle for freedom in America. The Black Panther Party, from 1966 until 1980, left a large footprint in that liberation struggle in our time. And the 10 point program kind of magnifies what we were all about. Our social programs is the remnants of what we were doing, what we had started, the breakfast program, the senior escort program, the busing program, the prisons, the free ambulance programs. All of those are necessary programs that took root because of the Black Panther Party and because the Black Panther Party I went forth to educate and organize the people. And they did that in various ways by setting examples, 
by talking about it, by writing about it in the Black Panther Party newspaper. So the issues that the Black Panther Party were dealing with are still some of the same similar problems today, but we just magnified it, you know. We put a, a magnifying glass on hunger, you know, uh, food injustice in our community, you know, food distribution in our community, you know. We put a spotlight on health services. You know, Black Panther Party had 13 free medical clinics across the country, two of which are still open to this very day. One in Seattle, Washington, called the Carol Downs Medical Center, which is named after a Black Panther sister who worked there who later died of breast cancer. And we had another clinic. It was called the Fred Hampton Memorial Dental Clinic. Now, the county took that over in Portland, and they certainly, the first thing they did was take that Fred Hampton name off of it. But... People in the community know that the Black Panther Party instituted those things in the community. So the legacy lives on and on and on. Uh, free food program. So the examples that the Black Panther Party set are still being followed today. You have a young group of people who are energetic, and they use the Black Panther Party as their guidelines. You know, uh, in almost every field, the Black Panther Party uh, excelled, went forth to expose the contradictions. For instance, in 1968, San Francisco State College, Ethnic Studies, 1969, Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley, which changed the course of history in America because as a result of those strikes, we had a thing called Ethnic Studies developing, you know, which brought about some like 3,000 uh, tenured jobs for, for professors, you know, throughout that particular history, you know. Uh, those, you know, we want... Uh, uh, Decent housing, you know, fit for the shelter of human beings. The Black Panther Party supported many rent strikes. The one, one of the issues that they dealt with at that particular time, because most of the older housing in Alameda County, as well as throughout the country, uh, most of them were used. Most of the owners used lead-based paint, which led to a lot of uh, lead poisoning with a lot of young people in our community because they added because it was kind of sweet, you know. But all on all issues, like sickle cell anemia, the word sickle cell anemia is not known, is not publicly said until 1972 when Bobby Seale said it on the Mike Douglas show. And we put, we put emphasis and went forward to educate people about this disease that attacks about 12% of black people. Most people didn't know what it was, even though even though they had it. So, the legacy of the party is to stand for the community, uh, fight for the community, and serve the community. And those kind of examples stand tall because not only did we talk, we put our theories into social practice. You can see what we've done. You can see how Erica Huggins had developed the Oakland Community School. You know, you can see the potential that came out of that. You know. Uh, even the, the George Jackson Free Medical Clinic, you know, we, we started programs. We started aiding with the help of David Du Bois, who was our editor of the Black Panther Party newspaper. We started aiding um, liberation groups who were fighting for their freedom in Africa, like Felino and Swapo and the ANC. We started sending medical supplies to those uh, liberation groups, you know. The Black Panther Party influence was a giant during that time. Uh, we're talking about uh, the TV show, The Jeffersons, I was talking to some, somebody about. That was the idea that came from a discussion 
that Huey had with the owner, with the uh, producer of Archie Bunker and Good Times and, and shows like that. He told him, hey, all your projections of black people, that they live in projects, you know, and they're black, that male is not there. Uh, why don't you show some successful blacks? Why don't you show some uh, uh, black people that stand up to racism? So the guy developed a show called The Jefferson. True story. Check it out. But the influence of the Black Panther Party, even in music, you know, uh, on all levels, you know, uh, you had groups like the Isley Brothers talking about fight to power. You had uh, groups like Bob Marley talking about get up, stand up. You had Black Panther Party had their own group called the Lumpen, you know. Uh, in fact, there's a book written by Ricky Vincent uh, about, it's called um, Party Music, and it's about the impact of the Black Panther Party and progressive music. James Brown doesn't sing a song like We Are Black and I'm Poor Out without a group like the Black Panther Party out in the community already educating people about it is, you know, it is black is beautiful. Those things don't happen in the absence of a foot struggle, a struggle in the community. So when groups like the Shy Light saying got to give more power to the people, that's from the energy, from the struggle. You know, so in every aspect, that's why the legacy of the Black Panther Party is still relevant today, you know, because you can look back and see how we solve problems. What was our methods? What was our techniques? Where did we go wrong? You know, so history is a weapon. Yeah, yeah, certainly is. Wow, wow. So um, tell us about what's coming up um, next month. Um, got a really full program, 55. My goodness, I remember... I remember 35, I remember 40. <laughs> um, these reunions are, are real, like, living history um, uh, moments, and you all have a really wonderful program scheduled. Yes, we do. Uh, the whole month uh, actually starts with uh, the first day, October 1st, at Joyce Gordon's uh, Gallery at 406 14th Street, Oakland. Uh, we're mm-hmm. having uh, – we're featuring – artists from the Black Panther Party newspaper, as well as young uh, progressive Panther Cubs, a uh, brother named Reefer One. You know, his dad, his mother yeah. and father was a Panther. Uh, his dad was a photographer for the party. His mother was a spokesperson for the party. And he has put up a number of Black Panther murals in the city of Oakland that are outstanding. And he's a part of this uh, art exhibit they were having. Emory has some new art in it, uh, Malik Edwards. A sister named, we used to call her a Solly, but her real name is Gail Dixon, and she would have some artwork on display. And it's about time Archive would have a photo display happening in the back of the gallery. Uh, so that, that's going on throughout the whole month. Also, uh, uh, October 9th, we're having an artist talk. So if anyone has any questions or they want to talk or meet these uh, artists who – you know, put some images, um, educational images out on the Black Panther Party newspaper. You can come see them at that time and talk to them. So that's going on. Uh, October 21st, which is uh, a Thursday, we're going to have a number uh, – uh, we're going to have a showing at the uh, New Parkway, a film documentary about Sister Charlotte, who is coming out to um, – 
she's our, she's our feature speaker for the 55th, you know. Uh, she's coming mm-hmm. from Tanzania, Africa. Uh, so she has a new documentary about 40 minutes long. Um, we're going to show that and interview her. She's going to make, bring a message from her husband, Pete O'Neill, who's been in exile for over 40 years. Uh, that's going to happen. Also, we have different trailers, teasers from different documentaries that are going to be shown in 2022. So we're going to do that at the same time. And the next day is uh, Friday. They're going to, at that first location of the Black Panther Party office, it's, um, there's a bakery there called All Good Bakery. All Good Bakery is going under a virtual history connection thing. So, as of on the twenty on the twenty second, they're going to have uh, uh, an event from twelve o'clock to three o'clock, and they're going to have some food there, and they're going to talk about the history of the bakery. In fact, the owner of the bakery of All Good Bakery went to school. Uh, uh, he went to the first free breakfast program for school children at St. Augustine as a kid, and later on, as he was maybe twelve or thirteen. I found a picture of him. He was standing security. He and his little buddies were standing security for Elaine Brown and Bobby Seale when he was running for mayor of Oakland, and he has that up in his store as well. But that's going to happen there. And uh, later on, the next day is the big day. What, um, uh, what's, what's his name, um, BJ, the uh, owner of um, All Good Bakery that you were mentioning? His name is Kim. I don't know Kim's last name, you know, but uh, he's a good brother. Whenever I have Black Panther Party tours, I always start there because the first office is located there, and in the next block is Merritt College where he and Bobby went to college at. So I always start there, and when he's there, he comes out from behind the, the, the counter and talks to the students about, you know, how the Black Panther Party uh, impacted him as a young person, and that's and the fact that when he bought the bakery, he didn't know that was the first office of the Black Panther Party. And since that oh. he found it, he didn't know that. But later he found out it was it, and he let David Hilliard at that time, the Hilliard P. Newton Foundation, put a collage up there. And also there was a historical landmark um, uh, uh, um, marker out in the front, but somebody stole that. But you know, he's very conscious, you know, of the impact of the Black Panther Party, you know. So Brother Kim uh, owns the bakery, and on the 23rd, uh, we're going to open the day at 11 o'clock. To, uh, 11 to 4 is where the celebration is going to be at. It's going to be at Bobby Hutton Park. People call it the Firmary Park. It's on 18th and Allen Line. Uh, we're going to have from, 10, from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock, we're going to have a healing circle. Um, uh, ran by uh, Sister Charlotte, and at that time we are going to commemorate all the fallen comrades of the Black Panther Party and um, people who went back to our ancestors. There's been a lot of Panthers that were killed during the time of the Black Panther Party, but some Panthers had died recently as last month from COVID. So we're going to honor all people that were servants that fought in the struggle for liberation. Uh, She's going to hit that, and that's going to go from 11 to 12. And at 12, we're going to kick off the 
the official opening of the 55th year celebration. We're going to have speakers. We're going to have music. Uh, we have Erica Hudson's going to speak. Uh, we're going to have Emery Douglas going to speak. Uh, Ricky Vincent's going to come talk. Uh, and we're going to have a number of community people. Sister Jill, who owns the Black Panther Women's Mural House, she's one of our uh, featured speakers. You know, so that's going to go on. But at the same time, across the street from Bobby Hutton Park, well, the West Oakland Library is letting us use their community center as a walkthrough exhibit. So we're going to have pictures, photographs, a lot of historical stuff on exhibit in the library multipurpose room from 11 o'clock to 4 o'clock. So also during the park, we're going to have uh, 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 large pictures of social programs so that people can uh, have, like, be an outside exhibit, you know. Uh, people can walk up to a big poster we have and have a caption in it. And so uh, being a, aware of COVID, you know, we're trying to keep people outside. That's why we are having it at Bobby Hutton Park and not Laney College. You know, people feel more comfortable outside than sitting around three or four hours in uh, – you know, in a room with 300 people, you know. So that's why it's outside. It's going to run until 4 o'clock. And then later on in the evening, we're going to have our banquet. Then the next day on the 24th, uh, we're going to have the Black Panther Party member group shot at the Mural House, Then, uh, which is going to happen at 1030. Then we're going to walk up the street uh, to night and, and – um, Mandela and be a part of the uh, unveiling of the bust of Huey P. Newton. And that's going to run from 11 o'clock to 3 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And after that, everybody's going to go back to Jill's, Jill's um, house and chill and listen to some music, you know. Mm-hmm. So we have, yeah. we, have, we have people coming in from out of town, from Seattle, Portland, L.A., different places throughout the country. But it's not it's going to be as big as the 50s because of COVID. A lot of people don't want to fly. A lot of people are very conscious of being around other people. So, you know, uh, it's kind of more localized, a smaller version, but we still celebrate. We're not going to let COVID mm-hmm. stop us. Right, right. Yeah, that's excellent, excellent program. Um, so... Will, like, for instance, the artist talk at Joyce Gordon Gallery, will there be uh, a virtual aspect to that for people that don't want to come to the gallery? What we're trying to do is, okay, like, between here, no. I can say I would try to make that happen. And just like, you know, same thing, I'm trying to make it happen with the uh, celebration on the 23rd. I want to make it so that we can broadcast it so mm-hmm. that the many comrades who are in Detroit, uh, New Orleans, and different places like that uh, can enjoy it as well. Now, uh, Robert, I mean, Albert Woodfox and Robert King were supposed to come out for this event. Due to the weather that's been happening in New Orleans the past, like, four weeks, I think it's going to prevent them from coming out, you know, because a lot of property was damaged and they have a terrible time down there. So uh, hopefully we can have something like that so that people in other geographical locations can join in as well. Mm -hmm. 
Good, good. That's good. Yeah. Oh, good. Excellent. So tell people, um, you know, the website so that they could, um, you know, read about the program and also look at, you know, the wonderful, um, you know, other aspects to, you know, It's About Time, Black Panther Party, uh, BPP, because um, your uh, website is, I mean, people can live there. <laughs> for a while. I mean, you've got films, you've got interviews, I mean, posters, you're linked to all these other progressive organizations that are sort of um, philosophically in concert with the Black Panther Party values. It's a wonderful um, <clears throat> um, institution, your um, your website. It's like, wow. One of our strongest aspects of that website is the coverage of Sisters of the Black Panther Party. I have mm-hmm. yeah. I had documentaries on our website about sisters in the party for the last twenty years. You know, mm-hmm. sisters that who made the who was in the party went out and made documentaries about the experience in the party. They've been on the website. You know, the role of women in the Black Panther Party. You know, a lot of our history is still being unfolded. Just recently, uh, uh, Brad Lomax article appeared in the New York Times. A whole page. Because uh, he was one of the inspirations behind the Disability Act of 1977, when uh, uh, handicapped dis- disabled people took over the HEW building in San Francisco in 1977-78 for 20 for 20 days. That resulted in the Disability Act of 1977, and Black Panther Party is finally giving credit for being instrumental in making that happen. You know, and many people don't know that. You know, they don't know. Uh, the, the imprint the Black Panther Party had around the world. We have a, we have it, there's a group over in New Zealand called the Polynesian Panthers. They've been together for 50 years. They just celebrated their 50th year celebration in June this year. They came to the they sent 13 members to the 50th year celebration back in 2016. So there's a group of people that invited me to Australia. Uh, uh, the Aborigines Panthers invited me to Australia years back. You know, there's a, a Black Panther Party unit in um, the U.K., you know. It was Black Panther uh, unit in Israel, you know, and, and, and at different parts of Africa, you know. And so when Charlotte O'Neill comes, she's going to uh, talk about the impact of the Black Panther Party in Africa, you know. So the Black Panther Party is just not a national phenomenon. It's a world phenomenon. Yeah, so true, so true, yeah. Well, we're really happy that, you know, you're staying on top of this to make sure that, um, you know, we have access to this information. A lot of times, um, you know, information like this is kind of lost to the community, but um, I don't know if that's a part of the mission of It's About Time, but it's it not lost. Okay. For, for instance, most of the books that come out today, they have pictures, just like um, – there's a big exhibit right now at the Harlem Gallery, and it, there's, there's photos of a guy named Harvey uh, uh, Jeffrey Scales. These are photos from 68, 69 he took. He doesn't know those people. He can't remember those people. So people like that enlist me to identify people in their books, like Stephen Shames, his three books on the photo books on the Black Panther Party. If you look under captions, I'm the ones who are identifying these Panthers, just like at Stanford College. They may have Huey P. Newton uh, archive, but they don't 
know who's who and what's what. You know, so you need mm-hmm. a panther who was living through those times to identify certain aspects of history, not a um, a, a scholar or a, a student or somebody that has a Ph.D. They was not there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, living history, living history. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about the 55th anniversary of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and um, and the wonderful... Hmm? Before you leave, our website for the 55th is www.bpp55th, year spelled out, Y-E-A-R, Celebration.com, where it take you to uh, 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 the schedule and time of what we're doing on the 55th. Mm-hmm, right, and and I link to it as well um, here oh, on the description yeah. for the program. But, um, okay. yeah, if, if people didn't catch it. But, again, it's uh, BPP for Black Panther Party, mm-hmm. 55th, 55th year, Celebration.com. It's really, really yeah, well yeah. Um, it's uh, really well well structured so you can find out everything and not miss anything. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> oh, one thing we need, we need drummers mm-hmm. for the healing circle. So any drummers out there that feel like hit, uh, 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 supporting us, bring your drum at 11 o'clock and be a part. All power mm-hmm. to the people. All power to the people. <laughs> Peace and blessings. All right.
Heritage Ensemble Black is back. And yes, I can hear you, uh, Brother Jahil um, Mutakim. Um, I was playing the music while we were waiting for you to join us. <laughs> yeah. I, you How know, are you? The, I'm doing well, sis. I tried the uh, the other uh, method, and uh, I got a, uh, a uh, I don't know what it was, but it wasn't, I don't think it was to, to, the, uh, to the program. Um, the, uh, I don't know what it was to... Uh, I got a uh, a video screen. Hmm, I don't know. You you mean you called you called the phone number and got something else? No, I'm not, the, other, I'm not clear. the other method. Yes, the other method. That you uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how else. I don't know what other method one would use to get okay. into the studio except call the number. Um, okay. Right. Yeah. All but right. anyway, it all worked out. You're here. <laughs> so that's wonderful. Yeah, um, can you, here can you talk about. Oh yeah, yeah, excellent connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. so we're talking to um, Brother Jaleel Mutakim, um, uh, freed um, warrior. <laughs> um, he is uh, co-founder along with deceased comrade Sister Sophia Bukhari, who passed in 2003, and Baba Herman Ferguson, who passed in 2014. Um, of the National Jericho Movement to Free All Political Prisoners. And you can look at the Jericho Movement.com if you don't know how to spell Jericho. Uh, J E R I C H O, and then movement um, is how you spell it. Uh, com. Founding Jericho in 1978 was just one of uh, Brother Jalil's many significant achievements. During his time in prison, he has received. He received a B.A. degree in sociology and a B.S. degree in psychology and drafting and office management certificates. Uh, In nearly 50 years of imprisonment, he mentored other prisoners and resolved numerous prison beefs. He stood by his principles and maintained the highest level of discipline, integrity, and self-respect and respect for others. His activism never ceased and is unquestionable. He has consistently provided movement leadership and guidance under the worst of conditions behind concrete and steel bars. He is author of We Are Our Own Liberators um, and Escape the Prism, um, Fade to Black. And his writings have been featured in several other books, magazines, and newspapers. Um, While in prison, uh, Brother Jalil called for the establishment of the In the Spirit of Mandela Coalition and the website there is spiritofmandela.org. This major initiative will consummate at the October 2021 International Tribunal, which we are here to talk about today, uh, bringing to the international progressive community the the charge of genocide against the U.S. corporate government. Um, Brother Jalil requests our solidarity, input, energy in this national and international determination. Um, He works for Citizen Action as a community organizer. So once again, <clears throat> welcome. And um <clears throat> we have uh we have until about nine o'clock my time to talk. So why don't we let you get started to talk to us about this international tribunal and the year of the political prisoner. 
Yes, yes, yes. Assalamualaikum, uh, Paz. Peace, um, and uh, all the all the the ways in which we can engender solidarity and, and salutation. Um, uh, it was 1998 that I put the, together the um, campaign for the Jericho movement, but in 2018 I was in solitary confinement uh, here in, in uh, Southport Correctional Facility for having taught a class at um, at a correctional facility that didn't like me teaching about the Black Panther Party and the history of the Black Panther Party. And so they put me in solitary confinement for four months. And at the time when I was in solitary confinement, they said it was necessary for us to once again bring the international Jewish to the United States. We had done so once before in uh, 1981 or 82. Uh, in that campaign, uh, the international Jewish came and they visited a couple of uh, political prisons, one particularly or uh, two, particularly, it was Sunni Al-Koli and uh, the warrior uh, Little Peltier. And both of them are still in prison today. And so our fight continues to be one to uh, gain their liberation, as well as many other of our comrades who are in prison uh, throughout the country. Uh, so I initiated the campaign for uh, having the National Jewish uh, return uh, to the United States. You know, it was in 2018. I put out that proposal. And it was heard by my comrades in the uh, Jericho uh, Amnesty Movement, and they decided this is something that we're going to do. It has evolved to a point where now today we are calling a, for the international jurors to hear testimony uh, on the issues of genocide. Uh, that will be uh, <clears throat> on October 22nd to the 25th. Uh, we are raising the question of genocide uh, on the whole issues of not only the question of political prisoners, but the cumulative conditions of black, brown, and indigenous people in the United States. I'd like to just read off the charges that we're bringing to the international jurors. We have nine jurors uh, from our nine international jurors who will be coming to the United States and or hear our testimony, the testimony of our, our witnesses uh, via um, our Zoom. Um, and those charges are, one, racist police killings of black, brown, and indigenous people. There's no uh, dispute that our people have been summarily murdered and killed uh, by state-sponsored uh, terrorism, particularly the police. Two, hyper-incarceration of black, brown, and indigenous people, which include and not amount, include and amount to the continued practice of uh, legally sanctioned slavery. As you well know, slavery has not been abolished in the United States. It has been, a, has been institutionalized by virtue of the 13th Amendment and the inspection clause inside the 13th Amendment. That says, except for those who have been convicted for crime, uh, they can be uh, forced into uh, involuntary servitude and slavery. And hyper-incarceration actually is mass incarceration of black, brown, and indigenous people. Uh, three, political incarceration of civil rights, national liberation era revolutionaries and activists, as well as the present-day activists. So we're talking about our political prisoners um, and their overdue uh, incarceration. You know, I did almost 50 years, 49 years and some months inside prison. And we have comments right now who is up to, for instance, Rochelle McGee, well, I think it's 46 to 48 years inside prison, or one of the longest held political prisons in the United States. Uh, four, environmental racism and its impact on black, brown, and indigenous people. Uh, we know that our community, many of our communities, are held in conditions uh, or in places where they have uh, these corporations and these businesses uh, polluting the air, polluting the water, polluting the, uh, uh, the land. And uh, this environmental racism also includes the choices of uh, what we call uh, food apartheid. We have food deserts in our communities or around our communities where we don't get the proper nutrition and food uh, that other communities receive. And so we're raising those charges as well. 
uh, and uh, five, public health racism and disparities and traumatic impact of black, brown, and indigenous people. Uh, that one in particularly, uh, in, in my opinion, is more so in as much as everything dealing with the mortality rate between black and white, uh, that disparity between the mortality rate between black and white people, and the social for also brown and, and indigenous people, but also the sterilization of our women. Uh, there's, I'm telling you, there's a problem right now in, in prisons in California uh, where they have been uh, uh, involuntarily, uh, uh, the women have been, been sterilized without their consent. Right? This, has not, this is not new. They had a, a major issue with that with Puerto Rican women uh, several years ago. And it was well known indigenous women have suffered the same type of fate. And so when we look at the, the, the cumulative aspect of this uh, dynamic of uh, white supremacy that we are confronting on a daily basis, institution of white supremacy, uh, institutionalized racism that we confront on a daily basis, it can't come out. Uh, in the totality to condition of genocide. So number number six, number six is genocide. Black, brown, indigenous people based on the above historic and systemic char- charges. And so, like I said, cumulatively, those conditions, these conditions, have resulted in, in many respects, in the, dim- the, the diminishing of our of our people, of our nation, of our race. And uh, we are come to the point where it's necessary for us to uh, bring our questions, bring our issues, of our struggle to the international community. On, a, on another level, on a, on a higher level. Not only that, but we're also commemorating the 70th uh, anniversary of the great Paul Robeson and William Patterson when they brought the first charge of, um, of genocide, a recharge genocide to the United Nations. That was on December 15, 1951. I mean, two months after, right about two months after my birth. And so we're commemorating the 70th anniversary of uh, that heroic effort on their part. And uh, we're saying that the condition that existed then, back in 1951, uh, has not changed significantly uh, outside of cosmetic ideas or maybe getting a, uh, a black person to be the president of the corporate government. Uh, outside of that, or, or vice president of the corporate government, outside of that, the conditions of black people, brown people, indigenous people on the ground has not significantly changed. And therefore, we feel that it's necessary to bring our charges and our issues uh, into the international community and by virtue of doing so, build out a base, build out basis of a new movement here in, in the United States. Um, so those are the charges that are being raised. And it'll be October 22nd to the 25th. Uh, the tribunal will be held at the Malcolm X Betty Shabazz Center in Harlem, New York. And uh, again, it will be hybrid. We have individuals who will be there participating, particularly some of the international jurists, and also our witnesses uh, who will be there to testify on these issues and these questions. We'll have expert witnesses, expert testimony that are being presented on all those issues and more. Um, and uh, beyond that, through the, the tribunal, if I may, uh, we will be submitting a petition to the United States uh, Federal District Court uh, when we charge genocide. And in that capacity, hopefully with the, with the assistance and support, particularly amicus brief with our friends of the court briefs, uh, submitted in our behalf across the country and internationally uh, we will be building out our campaign uh, on a domestic level uh, with the support of the international progressive community. Uh, we are looking for, in 2022, as I say, build out our campaign uh, to what we call a people's senate. We only seek to organize what we call a people's senate. We think there needs to be a new narrative in regards to the conditions of people of color, specifically in this country. Unfortunately, the corporate party, meaning the Democratic Republican Party, do not represent our major interests. 
And because they do that within our interest, uh, I think that it's time for us to have a new narrative, a new uh, language, a new way of interpreting what it is to be governed. And so we're calling for the people's senate, uh, our own senate, our own governing body, uh, organizing our own governing body, uh, hopefully in, in the, the ideas of, of building a, a national united front. A third word, a third narrative, a third uh, um, uh, movement uh, in, in our own representation, uh, representing our interests, and, and basically opposing uh, opposing uh, capitalism, opposing imperialism, and, pol- and opposing uh, white supremacy. Uh, that is the, the major ills of this social order that has plagued uh, people of color uh, from the very beginning, and from the very beginning of this system. You know, the idea of white supremacy. Uh, that is a major scourge on the planet. And I just want to just make one little note about the issue of white supremacy and what we're confronting. White supremacy is, is an aberration in human history, right? Uh, uh, it is an aberration based upon the idea that a people believe that they are greater or superior than any other people on the planet. That's nuts. That's crazy. That's an aberration, right? And we have uh, allowed ourselves in our own uh, complicity, allowed ourselves to be subjected to this false idea, this, this aberration uh, of thought. And uh, we need to uh, really come to, come to uh, an understanding exactly what it is. And I spoke to a, a psychologist uh, a psychiatrist once, and I said, you know, this, this idea of white supremacy is, is a neurosis. And uh, she corrected me. She said, no, it's not a neurosis. It's a, psych- it's a psychosis. I said, why is it a psychosis? She said, because they, they engage in psychotic behavior in terms of the kind of violence that they uh, engage in order to maintain this false, uh, this false ideology of white supremacy, uh, that some people are superior and other people are inferior on, on the planet. And so with this understanding in terms of the, the kind of violence that they have engaged in uh, uh, on a domestic level, the kind of uh, treatment that they have on, on people of color, uh, the kind of genocidal practices that they engaged in, in order to maintain this idea of white supremacy indicates to me, and I think for many others who have any kind of deep thought on this matter, that uh, this uh, idea, this, uh, this basis of, uh, of thinking is an aberration, right? It is, in fact, psychotic. And they engage in psychotic practices and in their, in their, their capacity to engage in violence against people of color. And so we said it's time for the end of this. It's time for us to make a, a, a dynamic move uh, building a new wave of, uh, of struggle in this country based upon the whole gamut, the whole gamut of fighting against uh, capitalist imperialism and white supremacy. <laughs> um, wow, that, that was a lot. Um, perhaps we can have you on again before um, the 22nd to, um, um, to talk in more, more depth around some of these points that you just brought out. But I wanted to ask you um uh with regards to the uh hmm um like for instance um I know you're still pulling together um the speakers but I was just wondering if you know at this point any of the or have any confirmations on some of the folks that are going to be testifying. And then the second question is um uh, remember when Elhaj Malik um, was going to take the United States government with the support of the international community to the um, uh, the highest courts 
to charge this government with genocide. Um, I think it was the UN, um, and this was, but he passed. Uh, his organization of Afro-American Unity, I believe, was doing that. And I believe Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was supportive of that. Um, I was wondering if this is sort of um, uh, in concert with with that particular move that his organization was making. Absolutely, I'm saying you cannot you cannot uh, uh, separate or or discern a difference between the, the goals and objectives that El Hajj Malik Shabazz wanted to achieve and what we're seeking to achieve uh, uh, today. And or what uh, uh, the great uh, Paul Robeson and William Patterson sought to achieve back in 1951. The conditions are the same, uh, or very similarly. Right? There has not been no major uh, difference in, in the treatment of uh, black, brown, and indigenous people in this country. And so, therefore, for us, uh, we are standing on the shoulders of those giants and continuing to move our struggle forward. Um, in terms of the, the witnesses, uh, we have not put out a uh, witness list yet, uh, and the reason why security. Uh, we don't want nothing oh. to happen to any of our witnesses, uh, and mm-hmm. we don't want the, uh, the government to try to uh, impose upon them white supremacist uh, 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 um, factors, right, that will hinder uh, their, their testimony. And so <clears throat> uh, we will be sending out a, a, uh, a news release, a press release, about the information, not, not only from in terms of our, our witnesses and, and the charges that we're bringing, but also the the, uh, uh, the international jurists. They themselves will announce themselves when they are prepared to do so. Uh, we do not want to put them in any kind of uh, um, uh, situation uh, where the uh, U.S. government, whether it be CIA, the FBI, or whatever, uh, um, Homeland Security, whatever, will seek to uh, undermine and prevent them from uh, functioning the capacity which they are noted for doing so, that is mandating their areas of responsibility uh, to look at the issues of uh, uh, human rights violations uh, around the world. Hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. So are are you saying that um, one of the major reasons why um, on the um, the anniversary of um, William Patterson and Paul Robeson's um, uh, similar charge uh, to this government, and then we have Haj Malik El Shabazz, you know, charging this government, and now um, your organization charging this government. That one of the major reasons why nothing has changed, um, even in in light of you know the Black Lives Matter movement, um, is because of white supremacy. Or is there something else at at, at stake here? Because I'm thinking even further back to after uh, enslavement of our our people, our ancestors, um, you know, back in um, um, 1865, um, or really, um, you know, when when the Emancipation Proclamation went into law, which was before that, um, 1863, that um, and but after you know the Civil War was over, and it's like, okay, we got these black people. What are we gonna do with them? Like, let's send them to Africa. Let's get rid of them. Um, does it go back to that even? What What is the deal? <laughs> why Why can't we get justice? Well, why can't that's, that's, Why can't that's, we realize that's, that's, our human rights in this nation? Well, of course, it's, it's the idea of white supremacy, inferiority. The idea of that some people are superior and, and inferior. Uh, uh, that That is the, that is the issue. Uh, what we saw happen on January sixth uh, this year. 
uh, when the white supremacists stormed uh, the Congress. If that was black people, brown people, yellow people were doing that, uh, indigenous people doing that, there were bodies everywhere, right? There were bodies everywhere. They were mowing people down. They didn't do that, okay? And that indicates for me, and I think for many, if one is conscious of what's going on in this country, that if we live in a white supremacist country, right? Uh, they don't necessarily want them to uh, take charge as they, they want to in terms of building this fascist uh, nation, nation up, uh, at least at this point in time in history. Uh, but they have been doing uh, what they have been doing for uh, going on 400 years in, in the statement of black, black, brown, and indigenous people. And so this is n- nothing new for us. Uh, what is new for us is that we come to the terms that we're tired of it, right? What's new for us is that we're tired of them killing us uh, with impunity. Uh, what, is, what is new to us is that we now have the, the opportunity uh, to bring our questions and bring our issues to, into the international progressive community and have, have them engaged. Yesterday I did a PSA um, that was going to be that will be uh, interpreted into uh, seven different nations, uh, seven different languages, and sent throughout the world. Uh, we are building out uh, our international capacity, our, our capacity to, to support our movement in the international community, and it's extremely important for us to understand that. Uh, we listen. Let me just make this point explicitly clear as well, right? Uh, the American population has blood on their hands. Right. American population and blood on hand. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King once stated that the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence on the planet. That's not my words, but Dr. Martin Luther King, a person of whom this country has made a national holiday. He said that, right? He's absolutely correct. And people around the world are waiting on us to get up off our ass to do what we need to do, right? Because they're fighting against colonialism, they're fighting against neocolonialism, they're fighting against imperialism throughout the world. Who's imperialism? The United States. And because I silence. They suffer. Because that complicity, they suffer. And so the world is looking at us and wondering, what the hell are we doing here in the United States? And what are these people doing? Right? And they're suffering here in the United States, and yet they are complicit and the suffering of people around the world. Right? So the international community is waiting for us uh, to do what we need to do. And the, the end, the bloodshed, uh, that Dr. King said that the United States is purveyor of violence throughout the world. Right? So that is the The country, listen. Uh, the United States is, is not only, <clears throat> of course, they're killing people, they're killing the planet. Understand that. All right? They're killing the planet. Uh, there's, there's another thing that I just want to make this people to just check out, just on, just on general uh, principle, right? Um, the other day I had uh, some young people at the house, and we were doing a study group, and I, I got, I got uh, Alexa. And I said, Alexa, how many billionaires in the United States? Alexa responded. 540, uh, 540 billionaires in the United States. And then I asked Alexa, well, what is the cumulative wealth of these 540 billionaires? And it responded, $2.3999 trillion, right? Trillion dollars. See, all the wealth of Western Europe is in the hands of 540 people, about 28,000 families, right? The United States has a population of 330 million people. And we align 540 people, 540 uh, families, uh, uh, 28,750 people to control the wealth of this planet, right? Control the wealth, at least, at least the wealth of the United States. So we don't live in, in a democracy, we live in a plutocracy. Let's get that understood, all right? And so uh, our, it behooves us to raise our consciousness, to have a better understanding of what this, how this we are living in, in this social order. All right, I'll just give you one more point on, on, that, on that level. <clears throat> if anyone goes to uh, 28 U.S.C., this is law, 
for the 28 U.S.C. 3002, uh, subparagraph 15A, they'll find out what it says in law that the United States is what? A federal corporation, right? And so what we have here is that the United States government, as a, as a government, is a corporation, and it functions as a corporation, right? And so we are basically, if you pledge allegiance to the United States, you pledge allegiance to a corporation. So we have corporate citizens, and this is the reason why the, the, the population is treated the way that they are being or have been treated, right? Because corporations have what? They look for profit over people. Profit over people. Not only that, not most recently, I think maybe about I think about ten years ago, the United States Supreme Court came up with the uh, decision in a case called Hobby Lobby, and they determined that corporation is a people or a person. All right. So when they talk about we the people, they're talking about we the corporation. Let's understand that. And so we have been deluded in this ideal of being citizens of a government of a nation, yet we are actually citizens of a corporation. And the corporation's functions in capacity from which they are able to determine how we live, when we live, or do not live. And so um, we, have to, we have to come out of this delusion that we've been suffered, that we've been indoctrinated into believing uh, that this is a nation of the people and by the people. No, this is a nation by the corporations for the corporations. And we need to understand that. Right, yeah. Ah, wow. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we're putting, you know, like it was a real dense, like I said, conversation. Um, and we'll definitely have to do this again um, leading up to the uh, the tribunal if, if that if that could work out for your schedule. All right, my sister. All right. You take good care. Thank you so much. All right. My, to, to my gratitude to, to the people, the listeners and audience, tell them I said, please endorse, go to Spirit of Mandela, dot org and endorse uh, our international tribunal 2021 uh it will and, and when you endorse and register uh, you will also get the link uh for it so you can watch uh, it will be live streamed so you can watch and hear what we are we're bringing to the international community and around the world okay all right excellent you take good care all right my sister assalamualaikum okay. Good morning, Nana Sula. How are you? Good morning, Wanda Sabir. How you doing? Oh, I'm well. I'm well. I'm so happy you could um, fit us into your schedule to tell us what's happening, um, you know, in your life um, post-Ida, Hurricane Ida. It's, what, it's been, what, um, a few weeks now since um, yeah. the winds came through and the water? Yeah, it's, been, it's been a minute, you know. I mean, I... It's been about maybe a week and a half, I, I guess. It seems like the days are just blurred together, but I guess it's mm-hmm. been about a week and a half, almost two weeks now. But it's been quite uh, – it, it, what I saw, what I'd like to talk about, I mean, is not necessarily mm-hmm. my personal life at all. I would like mm-hmm. to talk about what I saw during the storm, what I think we need to be alerted about oh. as a community of people. Okay. Um, yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh, certainly, yeah. certainly. Um, so, how how are you? How is how are you and your family? Are you okay? We're great. We're re- we're really great. My mother and I. My, my mother is in her eighties, and we made it through the storm. It was intensely hot. Uh, we were blessed to have the um, you know some water and ice supplies here by the National Guard. 
So I have to mm-hmm. say that was a blessing for us because it was very difficult to find anything open. And mm-hmm. uh, so we're well, M- mentally, uh, physically. Uh, it did take me a couple of days to recover because it was a lot. Like it was like a 12, yeah, I mean a 10-day, no electricity, you know, kind of scrambling for food, long lines, things like that. So at the end, I was so busy in survival mode that when it came down, it, I just had to sleep for a couple of days, not even straight, but I just needed to take my rest. And mm-hmm. I hadn't felt that way, but psychically and spiritually, it was a different storm for me personally. I would like to talk about that if I may. Oh sure, sure. Um, let me let me um let me uh read a little bit um from your website. Um people can go to sulaspirit dot com. Um I just wanna let people know sort of who you are, if you don't mind. Yeah. Not at all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean some people might know you because you are a frequent guest. <laughs> Bring in <laughs> your healing healing music and words. Um <laughs> and and you know, we, we play often, um, you know, um your opening uh, the way uh, for Ashu and thanks. you know from Spirit of the Orisha, you know with yeah, your sister. I, guess, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was about to say I get thanks to Zion Trinity for that compilation as well. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But you were uh, initiated in Ghana, West Africa, in 2007 at the shrine of uh, Empohima. Yeah, and you've studied the mysteries of Ghana since 1992, and your initiation title was uh, Nana Okumfo uh, Kokwe Ama Tawia. 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 Uh huh. Um, so Nana Sula has also been a student of Ifa Orisha mysteries of Nigeria since 1985. In 2014, uh, Sula Spirit authored and produced the book and CD project entitled Spirit of of the Orisha, a Yoruba language preservation project that is a 38-track CD in the Yoruba language with a matching book of translations. It is awesome, folks. You need to get a copy. Uh, Nana Sula is also an instructor of sacred music and travels globally to teach Orisha and Ghanaian chants. She was born and raised in New Jersey and has been a resident of New Orleans, Louisiana, since 1996. Nana Sula Spirit credits all that she is to the father and mother of creation, her parents, grandparents, and the Orisha uh, Abusam and ancestors. Um, she has a bachelor's of arts degree with distinct, distinguished honors in Africana, African studies and English literature from Rutgers University in New Jersey. Um, she has traveled extensively throughout Africa and the Caribbean and has been a volunteer with Operation Crossroads Africa, participating in community development projects on the continent of Africa since 1991. She is a singer-songwriter with the World B reggae band Zion Trinity and recently recorded her solo CD uh, in Tanzania, East Africa, entitled A Journey Within, and it's really wonderful, and we've talked about that on the air. Uh, Nana Sula is also lead singer of the band Mojuba, an Orisha-based band. She is the founder and priestess of Temple of Light, uh, Ile de Coin Coin, a temple of power for the elevation of souls located in the Musician's Village in New Orleans, Louisiana. We talked about the Musician's Village last week with um, uh, Brother Delphio Marcellus, uh, who checked oh, yeah. in last week. 
Kelsey. Yeah, let us know how he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. They're all doing well. Very good, brother. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And uh, Namasula Spirit is a medicine queen with the Mardi Gras Indian tribe, Mandingo Warriors. The spirit of, what is it? Fayaya. Fayaya. Oh, yes. Fayaya. I hear you all saying Fayaya. That's how you spell it, huh? That's my thing. That's my thing. Yep. And a member of the Mardi Gras Indian Queens of the Nation Society. In addition, um, Nanasula is uh, Nanasula the doula has been a birth doula since 2006 and was founding director of the uh, Nazaya uh, Doula Collective. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow, that's nice. Uh, 2007 to 2012, the first doula collective of, collective of color in the state of Louisiana. She serves on the board of directors of the Congo Square Preservation Society, and of course, she's a good friend of um, um, our, our um, Baba Luta, <laughs> who, we, who I spoke to a while back, and she's been a, a board member since 2009. And so, anyway, and again, I, I was just reading, you know, this about on SulaSpirit.com. So you can go and check out the website and buy some products and do some consultations, and visit the Temple of Light link. A lot, lot of good stuff here. <laughs> so Thank now you, you can tell us about, about, the, about you know, the storm. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to hurry into it. I was just, you know, I've been out. What I saw, Wanda, you talked about Ida, and what I saw was that we're in trouble if we don't begin to be proactive about our own survival. We can't wait for a FEMA check. We can't wait for the grocery store to open. Because what I saw is that if there's a decision not to open or the way that crops are being burned and farmers are told, being told to burn their crops, and food, there's a food shortage that is really serious that we have to talk about. I know it might look like Walmart shelves are stocked. I know it might look like, you know, the grocery stores in your town are, you know, all are cool. You don't have to worry about that. But if a storm comes through, you, you will understand what I'm saying. It was frightening. Like for the first few days of the storm, if it wasn't for Brother Lumumba, one of our brethren in the community who has uh, been doing uh, female gun training for the women in the community, so I say to him and Brother Stack, both of them have been doing some very powerful gun training for women in the community and everyone, but then concentrating on training women. And he was one of the brothers who was cooking food. But if not, and just free food, he just so happened to be cooking food that he had because he's been stocking food for a long time. But we have to be thinking ahead right now. And I saw in New Orleans many people were not prepared. We, were, we just were not prepared, you know. And so if the grocery store closes, we're in trouble. If you don't have water in your house, you're in trouble. If you don't have a propane stove, my friend, if you have gas in your house, you're in, you're all right. But if you have electric, you have to have a propane camp stove situation or you have trouble. So these are things that, like I said, it looks really, really strong today maybe in your neighborhood. We have to begin to either stock food you know, be be diligent about bringing more water into your house. 
making sure you have those because, you know, these these disasters, whatever you call them, these uh, occurrences in the world, they're going to continue to happen in different places. Mm-hmm. And we have to be, be prepared. And, you know, what's happening with forced um, vaccinations and other things, you know, we have to be mindful about the the government and being able to stand up on our own, whether they have to give us support or not. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's something that's really been on my heart. Like since the storm, I've been taking things out of my refrigerator, cutting the bottom off letters and we, we, uh, we germinating that, you know, we're growing that. And I've just been very diligent about growing food and will be diligent about stockpiling water. But I didn't even think it was a reality, Wanda, until this storm. It was just I was in my little world. But you got out the world real quick. And 10 days with no electricity, you know, it just, it was, it was, uh, it was wild out here. Mm-hmm. It was wild and dangerous. And so people were you, were you there? Like, city. were you and your mom, did you stay in New Orleans? Oh, during the, yeah. During the storm? We, we, we oh, were so you time. felt all that. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. I was here. I thought that's what I'm In the past, maybe I left. But mm-hmm. no, I saw this with my bare eyes. Mm-hmm. We got to get ready. <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked because, again, you think, oh, I'm just going to go to the grocery store. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> you're not going to store. If you don't have something in your house, no, you're not. If you don't have something to cook it on, what you going to do? You can have rice. How are you going to cook it? <laughs> Right. It was real. It was real. And and to those people who have family gardens or small gardens, please plant food. Plant food, y'all. If they decide not to have cabbage, if they decide not to have vegetables or, or fruit or anything that you might consume, make sure you have it. Don't rely on somebody. Make sure you have it. Every pot I have in my backyard is being repurposed right now into some food, mustard greens, kale of various kinds, lettuce, whatever you can plant now. And if it's cold where you live, bring it inside and put it in a very sunny window. But don't rely just on the stores. That is what I saw. So you can ask me anything else, but I just had to get this out. Because mm-hmm. it was alarming, and it wasn't just because yeah. of the storm. Let's say, mm-hmm. let's say tomorrow the government decides they're going to shut down the court. Let's just say that happens. If that happens, what you going to do? Just like we went to our stores and all the cells were empty, if you didn't go before 2 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, 12, you couldn't get nothing. It, all the empty, 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 Whole Foods, Rouse's, Robert's, whatever, Winn-Dixie. It was alarming, friends. So if I can say anything to you, y'all, family, start watching videos of growing things from your, you know, from scratch. That was very helpful to me. You know, I'm no, I'm no gardener necessarily. I'm no, you know, 
um, planter in that way, no fame, um, skilled gardener. I just started watching videos <laughs> and was like, oh, I can cut the bottom of my lettuce off. Oh, I can cut the bottom of my celery off. Oh, mm-hmm. I can cut the bottom of my cabbage off. Oh, and, and regrow a cabbage. Oh, I can put my turmeric in some, my turmeric and put it in the soil and regrow turmeric. I can put garlic in. Just take the, don't take the, the, the shell off. Put it in soil and grow it. Oh, I'm learning a, a plethora of things. Now, some things I have bought seeds, but not really. Like mustard greens in college, yeah, I bought the seeds. But just learn what you can. You know, let's go back to what Grandma and them knew. You know, Grandpa, they was in the crop. If we want to really do what our ancestors did, that's what's coming, you know, my memory is like what my grandparents did before they were allowed to go to a store. They had to grow their own tomatoes, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And we have forgotten and we can't forget. That's one medicine we cannot forget. Or we will be left out and knocking on the door trying to get somebody to give you a check. And if they don't give us a check, or let's say you don't qualify for that check, what you going to do? Like even, even food stamps here. There were no emergency. Everybody had to throw everything out of their refrigerators. But there were no emergency food stamps. They had, you had to get on a waiting list to get food stamps. Now, let's say you're, you have a family of seven or five and whatever children. What you going, what you mean I have to be on a waiting list? You see what I'm saying? So we can't mm-hmm. let the government play with us or we're going to get played with. And that's what I saw. You could, you know, that's really mm-hmm. what I want to share through the, through the community, that please mm-hmm. let's not sleep on that because I was quite surprised. But I was glad I saw it all. And I have to mm. say, I'm a person who doesn't scare easily. There were times I was very afraid. Mm. And I, I'm not scary. <laughs> if anybody knows me, I'm not a scary person. But what I saw jolted me. Even the, the amount of people coming right up to your window like, I need money, I I'm hungry. I was like, Wow. We're in another place, family. Yeah. So yeah. And, and I hear now people are getting evicted. It, it's about to get real bad out here in the streets, y'all. Mm-hmm. And if we can get to the country, if we can get to another country, mm-hmm. it's, it's time to move, family. I'm telling mm-hmm. y'all, it's time to move. Everything in my soul is time to move. We can't just sit around watching TV. <laughs> we can't sit around listening to the iPhone or whatever, whatever, Spotify, I don't know, whatever we do. We have to be proactive right now. It woke me up. I don't know, you know, it's up to anybody else who wants to wake up, but I, I, I'm awake right now. <laughs> yeah, and, and I wasn't awake in this way. I was like, oh, my, you know, my pasta was going to yard. I got to get to him. Now I'm like, no, I got to get to him right now. Mm-hmm. So that's my message today is when you ask about Ida, you know, um, we got to wake up. 
because there's some games about to be played and that are being played, and food shortage issues are real. So I, that's what I was awakened to. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So yeah. of course we can we can I can sing a song now to break the energy, but <laughs> that's, that's what I was <laughs> you know I know it was heavy what I shared, but it was heavy what I saw, Wanda. Mm-hmm. It was like it was remarkable. I I was it was remarkable. Straight up. So yeah. May may I sing a song because I'd like to offer. Oh yeah, please. Uh, yeah, certainly, certainly. I I want to I want to also offer the healing that that is is on the earth too because it's a time of great enlightenment, but we have to be awake, you know. And the spirit is is like it's been telling me it's time for us to also feed the earth. You know, Baba Luaye is here to help heal this earth and help us deal with this sickness that is in our mother earth. There's a, a overall sickness happening on the earth, and the mirror is being turned on that sickness right now. So Baba Luaye is very, very strong on the earth right now. And I, I thank him, you know, because he's made us go on and look at our own look at our own selves. So if we can do anything to help pray for the earth, pray for the water, pray for the land, seed the earth, dig a hole in the earth and put you know, make a meal and feed the earth and ask for the earth to be healed. Because we need as many people with their hands on deck to help pray for this earth right now. And the waters and the people. And the balance, the rebalancing back to, you know, uh, the, the sacred mother principle and the sacred father principles and the principles of life. So if I may sing to Baba Luaye, I think it's time for us also to feed the earth so that we can ask the earth to see us and help us. But we need help, and the guardians want to help us. Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly. <laughs> Baba Luaye Kwa Baba Luaye Kwa Help heal us and make us well, make us well on this planet. Make us be made well. Wanda Sabir, thank you for doing what you do. You just always bring consciousness to the masses. I, I just thank you. I thank you for giving us a platform to share what's in our spirits, what's in our communities, what's happening around the planet. Thank you for what you do, Wanda Sabir. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Nana Sula. Um, um, uh, Baba Malik uh, Rahim has joined us. Do you have a few more minutes to, to stay with us? Of course. I love Baba Malik. 
I'm always going to hold him in yeah. Hello, my lady. How you doing, my brother? Oh, it's a great blessing. It's a great oh, blessing. Oh, oh. Yeah. Are you still at the clinic, um, Malik? No, I'm uh, I'm back in Algiers. Okay. All yes, right. Yes. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. So, um, I don't know how much you caught of um, Nana Sula, but she was she was talking about she was talking your talk, you know, about being prepared because she said um, it's only going to get worse. So people need to make sure they have their provisions and so that they can, you know. Be it's sufficient not, when, when, when the system falls down. It is not that. Wanda, if we don't start looking at ourselves as a village or a community or whatever you want to call yourself and get prepared together, it's going to always be the way it is now. I believe these two have been warnings to us. Because, uh, you know, just like uh, you don't uh, chastise no kids without giving them a warning that what he's doing is wrong. That's the same thing that's happening to us. You know, uh, what we're doing to, to our wetlands, how we're not worrying about the impact of, of these two hurricanes, well, the last four hurricanes that came through here and hit the Gulf. What's happening to the Gulf? How many of them, how many of these abandoned Earl rigs is leaking? You know, we have to understand that. Why we have lost so much wetland? How can we restore our wetland? These are the things that, that, that is paramount with us. Everything that we have, that we have worked together, has survived hardships. You know, look at our churches. In, in my community, the church I belong to is 147 years old. How can we? How can it be 147 years without a membership that's working collectively? I'm not talking about the spiritual belief. I'm just talking about working collectively, and we have survived. You know, the same thing that is happening right now. We got to stop looking at it as just being prepared, me and my family. But your family live in a community. You know, like I told you this morning, right now we have people that's being put out, being evicted for no fault of their own, other than that they was in an apartment complex that happened to receive damage from uh, Hurricane Ida. That's the only thing. Was given 15 day notice to get out after a hurricane. Nobody telling you where you gonna go. And, and, and what's happening with us? You know, I mean, our mayor gave an evacuation uh, order uh, uh, three days after the hurricane. They started evacuating people. None of the schools, which is the strongest buildings in our community was open as a as an emergency shelter. You know, I mean, and when you tell people to shelter in place and you don't give them an option of where to shelter in place that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, to me it's, it's wrong. 
you know, and, and right now, you know, I mean, we need to form community disaster teams, you know, collective, where we work on it together. You think those who want to be a part of it need to come and join. You think those who don't, then it could depend upon the government. But we need to be prepared and know that if a hurricane is coming, that, that, our, that we will evacuate to a place that's at least 100 miles inland, and we're going to take our possessions. We think that we're going to move up. We're going to go into this. We're going to, you know, we're going to understand it. We're going to train it. We're going to be prepared for it. There's, there's no reason that you had over a million people flushing raw sewage into the Mississippi River. There's, there's no reason for it. Why? Why did it happen? Because nobody knew anything about uh, compost, how to use compost tars, how to make sure that that we could do something to restore our wetlands. You know what I mean? And these are the things that is needed. Because uh, every time we eat something out of the Gulf, you, know, you got to remember all those Lincoln Earl or rigs is in our water, and, and if it's in that water, it's in our, that food chain. So we, and it, it behooves all of us to come together and talk about how can we uh, uh, make sure that if certain things is happening, that one, we clean the gulf, we clean the river, we clean all our lakes and streams, and then we start with a restoration program. How can we restore our first line of defense? I don't want to live in a city that the only protection for it is a man-made levy. No, I don't want that to be my first line of defense because that means that we have lost all of our wetlands. You know how many people are going to have to be displaced? But we got to get past the racism. Right now in Grand Isle, they are talking about uh, how can they restore the wetlands. But after Katrina, I did over 100,000 plantings in Grand Isle and never got a thank you letter from them. When they found out I was an uh, 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 ex-cancer, oh, no, they wanted to have nothing else to do with me. You know, but now they're talking about what we were talking about after Katrina. You know, how can we restore uh, our wetland? Because I'm going to tell you something. Uh, disasters don't have no uh, color bias. They're not biased about anything. A disaster hit us all. How we are prepared for the, test, uh, the difference of us. And, and as African Americans who have always uh, felt the blunt of, uh, of the hardships after a disaster, it behooves us to come together and, and, and develop plans to make sure that this will never have the kind of impact that Katrina and Ida have had upon us. Uh, Malik, where where is Grand Isle? Grand Isle is well, it's in Jefferson Parish, but it's about uh, it's, it's right on the Gulf. It's it's about maybe a hundred miles from uh, Algiers. Yeah, Nana Sula, um, 
do you um, have any follow-up? Because I was just thinking, um, you know, one of the things I heard insofar as this particular hurricane was the um, uh, was was all the trees, you know, all the trees being felled, you know, just being pulled up by the roots, and um, you know, just I can't even imagine sort of what that looked like, um, but it seems like it must look like giants, you know, just sort of lying down on the ground. Um, you know, you think about trees as as people. Um, I was just wondering if if um, you know you want to add to what um, Brother Malik said, or you know, comment no, on I, it. Or I, mm-hmm. no, I I so appreciate uh, Brother Malik. Brother Malik has always uh, gathered the community together to to come together. We just we have to form those things. I mean, we have some community, some, especially there's some people doing some great community gardens, doing some stuff together. But, you know, I don't, as far as organizing on a mass level or on a, a larger level or, or within our own communities, it, it is very much needed because I realize, and I'm sure Malik can speak on this, that, you know, without each other, we wouldn't have survived this. Without our community, without, because everybody came together for each other, I have to say. I had neighbors and People calling, checking on me and my mama, you know, y'all got water, and people knocked on the door, do you need ice? So the community uh, love and the community organizing together was critical outside of whatever, quote, the National Guard brought, we you know, with the water and the, the ice. I'm talking about our own people. People were coming together to cook for each other. I have a generator. I can charge your phone, things like that. So I saw a, be- a really beautiful community um coming together for the storm. But I just know that as far as food preparation, we have to be able to really grow our own food and be better prepared. Yeah. And, and Malik, um, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, being, um, uh, I think you're a founding member of the the New Orleans chapter of the Black Panther Party. I'm wondering, you know, on the eve of the 55th anniversary of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense's founding, if you could talk a little bit about about how I mean this is sort of like a part of everything you do, you know, um uh being a Black Panther Party member, being a founding member, uh that ten point program. Well one thing I know that if the if the party was still been in existence. There's no way in the world our community would have been impacted the way it has between Katrina and uh, and Ida. There's no way in the world that any of those disasters would have had to, to impact upon us because I know we would have established disaster preparedness teams to be prepared for when these things happen because we all know, just as sure as we know that uh, tomorrow will be Thursday. We know that that in the future we will be hit by a hurricane. So it's time for us to be prepared for right now. That's, that's the warning that we are getting. Katrina was water this time here. Ida came through. If if Ida would have been would have been water like Katrina, we would have lost an equal amount of uh, death. We would have had the equal amount of death. But because of the fact that the most high spared us, that we only got hit with wind damage. You think that uh, that, that we have another chance to get prepared because we wasn't prepared. 
You know what I mean? People was leaving, those who could afford to leave, but then most of them went broke uh, 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 on motel fees. And now they have to come back. And when they come back, you know, I mean, it's such a competitive market as for who could get what done. And most people is trying to get tops on their roof. I, I'm, I'm, I said, oh, listen, I don't have a top on my roof. I'm 73 years old. I, I'm sick and I can't climb on the roof. You dig? And, 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 I, and I'm doing better than most. Look at the 800 people that was evacuated, 800 seniors. Nobody cares about them because they wasn't nothing but poor people. You think that this one guy had a monopoly on eight, on six or seven uh, senior care centers, and he put 800 people in a warehouse. And look what happened to them. You go to that right here to my community to the cutoff, and you see the residence that was left that boy. You think it was. A residents that was on the third floor that couldn't get down on the first floor because they had no means of getting, uh, 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 they couldn't make it with, without assistance. And there was nobody there to assist them. How their food went bad, and when, when my sister talked about that ice, everybody knew that after a disaster, the first thing you're going to need is ice. You know, so again, we could be prepared. There's no reason why. The sewage and water board, if, if they can make water good enough for us to drink, they can have ice machines right up in there that in, in case of like today, I mean, like what happened after Ida, that they could produce enough ice. There's enough refrigerated uh, trailers, vans, uh, uh, trucks here in the city that they can make sure that people's food wouldn't have had to go bad. But when you're in a city... Where, uh, where people have forgot to care. You know, we could, we could walk away and say, well, hey, man, I'm going to leave. You dig? I'm, I'm booking for the hurricane. But now my second and third cup, I'm going to leave it here because I got it in sugar. Not that I'm going to a neighbor to sleep. I'm going to just lock it up and leave it. The food in my refrigerator, before I give it away, I'll let it go bad. And everyone knew that we was going to go at least three days without uh, power and, and, and buying those generators. We bought all those uh, gas generators, and, and with most people, that was their first time ever using a, a gas generator. And now they're stuck with this big old gas generator. You think when it could have been easily been established with solar, because one thing we have here, and we have it in abundance, is sunlight. So after the hurricane, everybody buying these gas generators, no filling stations is open. So they got to go out of town to, to buy the gas. And now here they're riding with full containers of gas plus the gas they have in their car. That's what caused the, the shortage. That's what made, uh, made, made it to the degree that a man got killed over uh, filling up his car from cutting in line. He, he lost his life. And because he tried to cut, nobody even stopped pumping their gas to see him, see about it. So he laid down until the police came. Damn. Wow. You know, I mean, and, and, and listen, you could, 
what I'm saying, Wanda, is easy for you to verify. I mean, this happens. Right. You know what I mean? So, so again, we got to come together. If every church had a, had a disaster preparedness team, if every mosque, if, if every uh, uh, temple had one, you dig it? We could, we could move like this. The only person I know that has one is the nation of Islam. No, but we all stay in this city, and it's not that bad for us. I want you to. What would happen if if, you, if there was an earthquake in California, and you have to go uh, two weeks without power? You know, where are you gonna get your drinking water from? Because you can only go three days without water. You know where are you gonna get your water from? Because here we are talking about just thousands of people. But in that Bay Area, now you're talking about tens of millions. What is it, 14 million people there? FEMA have a hard time dealing with thousands. So you know they can't do nothing to help uh, uh, millions of people. So, it's, uh, so it's, you know, it's up to the community. We can't rely upon government. We can't rely upon corporations and big businesses. The community itself must take charge of, of, of what happened in the aftermath of a disaster because we're going to be having them, but, it's, but, but we can live through disasters. But there's no reason for any disaster to turn to a tragedy. You see? And, the, and it only turns to a tragedy because of lack of preparation. Um, I think we, we spoke earlier um, um, offline Malik, about if people want to help, how do they, you know, are there some organizations that you could recommend for people that want to, um, you know, send some uh, monetary aid that will get to the people? Well, right now, Wanda, uh, that's still being put in place. Uh, Some of the things that is needed now, it's tools, the Tyvek suits, uh, respirators. I'm not talking about the mask. I'm talking about four respirators. It is rubber boots and gloves and goggles. And what is that? That's needed for so that we could do the proper mold abatement that's got, that, is, that is desperately needed right now. Because every place that you see, every house that you see, uh, on the news, I have a blue top. They have that blue top on it for a reason. That means that, that there was a leak in that roof. And if there was a leak in that roof, that means water got into it. Water damage caused mold or infestation here. So we have to understand that. We have to be prepared. We have to tell people how to quarantine their house, how to clean it, how to do the proper mold abatement. Because uh, a lot of people, uh, when they try to clean it, they're trying to do it themselves. The clothes they have on, they don't understand that that the mold spur is going to be all in their clothes. They got the little dust mask on and uh, not understanding that that, that's not real protection from that mold, uh, those mold spurs. And then they're taking them clothes, they're getting in their cars with it, they're going home and, 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 and just, Everywhere they go, and they're tracking those mold sperm. But we have to learn how to do the how to do the proper mold abatement, and then how can we re- uh, recover from it? 
how can we understand the importance of that? Hey, we're in a city that's under a crisis, and that and that crisis uh, is causing us that we have to be double prepared. You think if a white family is prepared, then we have to be three times as prepared in this city. You think because that's about the equal of our income. Our income is, is, is almost three times less than a, the average white family. But it gives us a chance. We have to come together. We have to work together. If we can work together to keep our churches open, then we can use them as the nucleus for our recovery after a disaster. If, uh, if our mosque is open, and we can use it as as Likewise, as the same for our recovery, our temples, we can use this, our community centers, you think our schools, you think our schools should be, every school should have a disaster preparedness uh, program of what they're going to do to help not only the students, but the community in which they serve. You think these are the things that we have to understand. These are the, and I'm not talking about just here, because as I stated, here, we, at least we get a warning. You don't get a warning if there's a, a, a earthquake. It just mm-hmm. happens. And if it happens and, and you have to go days without uh, power, uh, uh, you can't use your car because of the debris, mm-hmm. where would you go? Right. You know, how, where's the organi- organization that put things together? You did. Uh, your fire department, who is critical, they're going to be uh, uh, inundated with putting out fire. And what you see that's going on right now in California, how can you deal with it? And how can you go, you know, it might be civil for the first three days. But after three days, when the, the need become greater, and 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 and, uh, and and the supplies is less. You know when there's a, no more drinking water. Right. What people gonna do for the existing drinking water? Is it gonna turn into anarchy, or, or, or are we gonna have a plan? And the only thing that can prevent it from happening is we are prepared. You know, I just right. left from uh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles have uh, four times the the population of the whole state of Louisiana. And they're not prepared. I just spoke at uh, at Occidental College. They're not prepared. You know, and and none of the universities have a real disaster plan. It didn't need to happen this way here. It would have been easy for the tell the three if you don't want to go with no other college, the three traditional African American colleges that's in this city. They come into the community and help this 240 or 250, 1,000 African Americans in this city. And they could have done it if we could have waived their student debt for them to do it. And we could have saved our community. But what they did, they shipped everybody out. So again, we have to come together. Right now, we had a. We had a, a, a crucial time in New Orleans because we'll be electing the next uh, mayor and, and uh, city council who will run this city. We have to we have to make our demands 
We have to make different demands on the emergency preparedness. You think that every fire department should be the center for uh, disaster relief. Every school should be uh, a place that is made because they are the most stable buildings. Then our community center should be open. It should have a plan there. It should have a place there where people go come and bring the food and keep it refrigerated because it's not like we're a third world country. You know, because I have seen people that was able to make sure that they didn't lose a thing. And then I saw people who didn't have nothing and lost everything. Yeah, right. And nobody cared. But if you want to teach people anything about civic or global responsibility, you got to show it to them. You think, I don't want to uh, walk through the community and people see, uh, well, you're doing fine. You're going back to, uh, to supporting the saints, but you can't support me on, on getting my house together. And, and that's what you find. You find right now in this city more about this coming saints home game than about how can we work to restore some of these communities that have been hard hit. Go to the past. See how many African-Americans have volunteered to go help our African-American community where people have lost everything. Right. Go and yeah, see well, how many um, people have volunteered. Yeah. Sorry, Nana Sula and Malik, we're, we're out of time because I've got some other I'm guests um, that are going to join us for the end. So, um, so I guess we need to check in with you again, um, or you can send me um, the information about you know, once um, you pull together the entity that can accept donations, that's a reputable organization. Give me two weeks. Give me two okay, weeks. Two weeks. Okay, I'll, okay, I'll call you back. And and Nana Sula, please, um, you know, let me know if there's anything you know that you'd like to get the word out on. And um, yeah, and thank you so much, um, you know, for joining us to talk about both of you to talk about disaster preparedness because that is definitely seems to be the message. Um, you know, that you need to get prepared because it's not going to get any better um, because, you know, the earth, yeah, we have harmed the planet and the planet is responding. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Wanda, thank you for always uh, just showing up. We appreciate you so much, and we'll talk soon. All right, you take good care. Wanda, please give me my number, and thank you. Oh, yeah, certainly. I'll I'll send it to you, yeah, right now, um, Nana Sula. So you all can be in touch. Oh, yes. All right. All right. Peace and blessings. All right. Peace and blessings. All power. Yes, all power to the people. All righty. (laughs) Thank you so much, um, uh, Brother Rome, Neil, and Brother Jerome, Preston Bates, and... Gosh, there's a lot of y'all on on the air. Um, I like five. <laughs> I, I don't yeah, know is it five of us? So, yeah, there's five of you. So, brother Rome, why don't you oh, tell wow. me who's with us? Brother <laughs> Jerome better tell you that. I better tell you. <laughs> well, uh, good morning, uh, Sister Wanda, and thank you once again for having us. I am so grateful uh, that you invited us back to the table to talk. Um, we have a we have a cast of uh of of, of eight incredible thespians 
and two of them are with us today, uh, Gabrielle Lee and Ginia Lear Morgan. We also have, um, I hope I pronounced your name right, we we also have Rosalie Brooks from uh, Los Angeles who actually recorded with Jimi Hendrix when he was on tour with Little Richard um, and stopped over in Los Angeles. She was a singer and a vocalist then, and she's still singing, and she's a vocalist now in the blues, jazz, R&B, gospel uh, arena. And, of course, you know, um, Ron Neal, uh, the director of my um, Jimi Hendrix Experiment and the technical director of both the Jimi Hendrix Experiment and Electric Lady. And we're, I'm just honored to be here with you, and I thank you. Oh, well, I'm glad I must say what a, an experiment that was that we had last week. An experiment mm-hmm. and experience, it was um, just fantastic. You tuned into it. How did you feel about it? What did you feel about it? Oh, it was awesome. It was really, really awesome. I mean, I, I really, I really love the way you told the story, um, uh, Jerome. It was, <laughs> you know, it was like we were like sitting in your living room, and it was just, yeah, yeah. It was great. It was a really great sort of. Um, it was, uh, it was like a, um, a preview, you know, and and we were there with you, you know, um, through, you know, some of the technical difficulties, and it was just such a great story. The way you told the story was really, really wonderful. And then, and then, oh my goodness, the star-studded talkback. Oh my goodness, um, you know, Miss Rosalie, you were like, oh my God, you just hold it down with the men. Like, look at you, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah, it was really nice. Um, and then having the live music. Oh man, like, you know, y'all didn't want to like. Call it like okay, it needs to be over. <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was like I could have sat there for longer. It was such a great way to honor you know this genius and and on the day that he made his ascension, like how mm-hmm. how wonderful to be there, you know, like a, a real ancestral yeah. day. That was like wow. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and this one here, you know. Um, you know, the women, oh, my goodness, Electric Lady. So um, do you want to, um, you know, since you wrote it, Jerome, do you want to, like, tell us sort of what it's about and then maybe call on, you know, um, our, our two special guests that are part of this program, you know, um, that's going to be, um, again, uh, electronically available um, you know, in a virtual screening on Friday, October 1st, um, 5 p.m., um, Pacific time and 8 p.m. Eastern time, and I don't know if you're going to have um, a talk back afterwards. But why don't you tell us yes. about it and invite our our special guests to talk about their roles and their re- relationships with uh, you know the great Jimi Hendrix. Okay, well thank you once again. Uh, yes, the Electric Lady was a play I wrote some time ago, and uh, as opposed to last week's The Jimi Hendrix Experiment was based on a play I wrote some time ago, but I had to rewrite it because I just don't do Jimi Hendrix anymore. So I wrote it in a third person, and I called it The Life, Legend, and Divine Lineage of Jimi Hendrix. And so Electric Lady 
I grew up, you know, this was before Prince and Michael Jackson, and Jimi Hendrix was uh, just incredible. But a lot of African Americans really did know about it, um, but a, a great percentage did. And um, But what I heard about him was big hair, loud clothes, drugs, and all of this stuff, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all of that. But when I began to rap, kind of research him, I realized that that wasn't the person that he was. I realized that was a, 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 a rather genius about him, but there was a humbleness about the gift that he had. Um, he, they spoke of him almost like having a gentleman's quality about him, very respectful. Nobody is perfect. I'm not trying to paint Jimmy Hendrix as a perfect person. We all have our flaws, and we all have uh, the choices that we make, and, and our life become the consequences of our choices. But what the public um, gave us as Jimi Hendrix, I realized that it not that wasn't the real person. I look at uh, interviews like the Dick Cavett Show, and I see this guy who is just humble, just glad to be there, um, just and, and it was nothing like uh, what appeared on the stage. Um, I was talking to a buddy last week, and he said, oh, so he wasn't the alpha male. I said, maybe not as a person, but, man, when he plucked that guitar up, he was the baddest dude around, and it was an incredible contrast. So I began to, um, uh, you know, to collect these stories, and then I had the fortune of meeting actual, these actual women, um, you know, Monica Daneman, who he died, uh, who was with him the night he died, um, I met her in Amsterdam when I was on tour with Buddy Miles and Noah Redding, two of Jimi Hendrix's band members and other musicians. And uh, and I, I received letters from her. Fane Crigian, little Fane Crigian, I had about a 12-year telephone conversation with her, and she was just a wonderful woman. A lot of times we didn't even talk about Jimi Hendrix. We were talking four hours, and maybe an hour we talk about Jimi Hendrix. And then I got the opportunity to meet the incredible living legend, uh, Rosalie Brooks, who's still in Los Angeles and wherever she's called to um, give her gift of music and storytelling, um, she's still doing it. So with us today are, um, and it's uh, Ladies in the Life of Jimi Hendrix, and what I began to add to it is the um, uh, the fight for the soul of Jimi Hendrix, so, uh, uh, you know, the, and I do believe with all of us. There's, uh, there's, uh, there's, uh, within us, there's the desire to do good, but then there's something pulling from us to make bad choices, you know. So I'm, 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 I'm adding the spiritual struggle that Jimmy may have had within himself in this particular uh, rendition of the play. Um, today we have Gabrielle Lee, who plays uh, a new element that I've added to the play about an angel based on Jimi Hendrix stories about angels and little wings. I have with um, Jinia, Jinia, Jinia Lear Morgan, who plays Lithophane Pridgen. And the, the, the blessed thing about Jinia, she was given the number of Lithophane and she actually called her and had some conversations and some good conversation with her. And I also had one of the women that I've written about. Genia. Genia. One of the women that I've written about uh, with us today, Rosa Lee Brooks. 
those yeah. are the ladies Ooh. that we have today with us in pushing the wrong meal. And so I, I would I would let you direct where where you would like to take them. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we um, why don't we have you know each of um, of our our special guests you know talk about um, you know their their role in in the uh, electric lady and why don't we start with uh, with you um, uh, Ms. Rosalie Brooks um, because you actually um, I mean you know you you knew him and you you um, you know, you talked about, you know, how you met him and things like that and um and I was looking really quickly, I noticed there's a My Diary, uh, nineteen sixty five with you featuring Jimi Hendrix's um guitar debut on record. So I wonder if you could talk about, you know, this man and um and what you're gonna be you know, give us a little preview of what you're gonna be doing, um you know, in this this production, um, uh, Electric Lady, on Friday. Where to begin? First of all, I just want to <laughs> express my thanks uh, to Jerome Preston Bates for for doing justice to Jimi Hendrix finally, <clears throat> because he is coming correct with information that has been hidden, has been distorted, has been looked over, ignored, particularly the black women in his life. It's like they put us on the back of the bus, so to speak. Um, They parade around the groupies and put them as great importance in his life. But none of them sang a note with him. Mm-hmm. I, I did. I was his muse. And uh, so was Fane Pridgen, by the way. Uh, I have to say, she said she was, she was a muse to many. You know, like she had friends like Sam Cooke. And I let somebody else tell her story. But that's who she was, too. You know, Jimmy was attracted to people who inspired him, who lifted him, who helped him uh, um, put more design into his in his music and himself. Mm-hmm. And I was part of that, too, because um, the way that he started dressing, I was the first one who dressed him that way. When he had, had, he had a show that he had to do with Little Richard, at this place called the Golden Bear, and it was out here in Ontario somewhere, Irwindale, one of those places. But I washed and pressed and curled his hair. I had this white puffy sleeve blouse with the pointed collars and uh, a black velvet bolero with uh, red stamp roses with green leaves on them. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that night when I got him, I did his hair, and he didn't want me to comb the curls out. He said, no, I, said, I want them to lock in, you know, so so they'd be real nice when tonight comes. And he mm-hmm. told me, he turned and told me, he said, I'm going to show you something tonight. This is the part I've been waiting to talk about. Jimmy got on that stage, and he took over. Mm-hmm. 
all the stuff that people were so amazed and, and just blown away by, I saw it before everybody. He told me, I'm going to show you something tonight. And <laughs> that's what he did. Everybody's jaw was dropped into place. And he played behind his head, behind his back, between his legs, with the cuff of his sleeve. Did it and played it with his teeth. All of that. He pulled out all the stops in his performance, and he got in trouble with Little Richard afterwards. Got chewed out, and uh, had to have a meeting with him before he could leave. So we had to wait <laughs> while he got himself chewed out. But uh, that was uh, something that I and I knew from that day forward. He was headed for greatness. I knew that. You know, I saw it then, 1964. And um, I'll never forget that night, you know, that that he performed the way he did. So uh, that was the first sighting of, of, of what he went on to become and exploded in front of the world. And uh, they just, they lost their minds over him, you know, from that day forward. Mm, amen. Mm, amen. Well, what a story there. I mean, you know, yeah. that that you 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 you're hearing it right there from um um someone who actually um experienced uh, uh time with Jimi Hendrix and uh, we're grateful that Rosa has uh, agreed to um to be a part. Rosa is actually in the um, the post-show discussion. Um, her oh, story, parts of her story, as I heard it and remembered it. Um, you know, as an artist, we um, we know stories, and but we we use a little artistic license to tell the story. And um, but we are grateful that uh, she has become um, a part of uh, of what we're doing and. She's a part of the post show as she was a part of the Jimi Hendrix experiment. We're also going to have Corey Washington as one of the post show guests who has written three books on Jimi Hendrix. And one of the most recently uh, books that he's written, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Black Legacy, A Dream Deferred, one of his yeah. last books. And, um, and he was very instrumental in getting the band of gypsies into the rhythm of blues Hall of Fame. He's trying to get the Rhythm of Blues Hall of Fame in Augusta, Georgia. The most coincidental thing about Corey Washington, he's in Augusta, Georgia, and he was born in New York. I was born mm. in Augusta, Georgia, and I'm in New York now. <laughs> so, uh, and Nona, Nona Hate, I understand, will join us. She's the photographer who uh, she uh, photographed Jimi Hendrix. 1969 Madison Square Garden um, 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 appearance, and uh, she actually uh, connected me with uh, Monica Daneman, uh, the woman that Jimmy was with the night he died, and Monica uh, is no longer with us. She died in the early 90s. So those are the post-show guests, Rosa being one of them, uh, Corey Washington, and uh, Nona Hate, photographer, born in Scotland, lives in the mm-hmm. United States. And right now she lives in uh, Massachusetts. And then we also have with us um, Genia Leah Morgan. And uh, 
and Gabrielle Lee. They they are the actresses that are part of this. Two of the actresses that are part of the the Electric Lady. Mm hmm. So, Miss um, Gabrielle Lee, um, would you like to talk to us a little bit about uh, ladies in the life of Jimi Hendrix, the Electric Lady? Um, <laughs> hi, hi. hi. Um, well, I can talk a little bit about it. I'm I'm Gabrielle. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, originally, and. Um, I, you know, I have worked with the Jerome Preston Bates <laughs> in, the, in the past, and I am just delighted and honored that he um, asked me to be a part of this project. I'm like, of course, whatever he's doing, he's put his, his finger, his pen to the paper, of course. Uh, I, I, I um, admire his work as an actor, as an artist, and... Um, so to come on board and tell and and to be a part of of a little bit of storytelling on Jimi Hendrix, um, I grew up with. I have three older brothers. Uh, I, w- I can't say I was around when Jimi Hendrix was on the scene. I wish I were. I was coming around <laughs> into the, in, in this side of of heaven. I was coming, uh, but I have three other brothers that I grew up with who. Oh my gosh! I I mean they became they were Jimi Hendrix uh, uh, wannabes. Um, uh, I, I grew up with that as a little girl of three older brothers wanting to outdo each other on an electric guitar. So my house was full <laughs> of of speakers and boom. Loud. I mean, just just the loudest and the wah pedals and all this stuff. And uh, uh, I had no idea what the heck was going on. But I ended up, you know, I I was um, I was just engrossed in Jimi Hendrix music. Uh, but I I I I have to say I'm a Prince fan and I <laughs> and Little Richard fan. And uh, so this this. This play has been so far. This has been a storytelling, a historical storytelling for me. I'm a musical theater performer. I've performed uh, my first. I mean, I've performed background vocals with a lot of people: uh, Martha Rees and Vandellas, uh, Harry Belafonte, uh, Diana Ross, Michael Bolton. Just uh, I sing, and I like all kind of music. I've never had the opportunity to experience. Uh, rock and roll so much. I wish I could. Uh, it's not over yet. Uh, I wanted to sing background vocals for Tina Turner, of course. Um, she's the closest I've come. And next to Prince, I remember trying to get backstage to give Prince my resume. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when I was in school. Uh, and uh, I actually caught his attention, but it didn't happen. My mom would have just—it just wouldn't have happened. Um, but anyway, the character—I'm just rambling on, just because I'm—I'm excited. I'm excited so to be good. a part so of this. Good. Thank you, Jerome. And and the role I'm playing actually is uh, as he's developing this 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 piece. Um, and I love the role that I ended up in. You know, I don't believe in accidents, Jerome. I'm saying this to you mm. now. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> but I, I play Angel. Um, Angie, actually. Angie, who is, uh, uh, Jerome mentioned earlier a little bit about 
you know, we all have this in life, a spiritual battle. You know, mm-hmm. we we fight against the principalities, you know, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. going on. And mm-hmm. I am delighted to play Angie, who is one of the spirits that's warring against uh, this other character called uh, Devonse. <laughs> Uh, pulling Devontae's pulling Jimmy in one direction, and I'm pulling in the other, and there's a battle, and I enjoy that. I've I was just sharing with uh, Jerome recently that I played. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Once on This Island, a musical. Uh, Once on this island. Oh yes, with, I am. That's a great great, great musical. Yeah, it's based. Yeah, on and I was, I was I played Urzuli, who is the goddess of love. Uh, oh, Ursuli. Ursuli does I did three times, Ursuli. And um, and this, I was like, Jerome! I was like, she reminds me, she's Ursuli! <laughs> and um, and I'm like, this this finds me. These kind of roles, it's like, okay, this is the next thing I'm supposed to do in my work as an artist here in New York. Um, as well as learn about these women and learn more about Jimmy, his his person, because yes, I grew up my the history and my knowingness aside from my brothers is hearing all of the news. I remember the shock I think of of, of his passing and all of that, but and all and the, the yeah the sex drugs and alcohol and all of the negativity around that. It's so disappointing. I just remember being so disappointed. Because there's more to a person than I'm sure. I'm sure he was amazing because you know my family loved him, but I don't know any of that. So I just appreciate the direction in which you're going with this, Jerome, and telling this Thank story. You. <laughs> Thank you. Thank oh, you. That's wow. Oh wow, that's so cool. And then and then I think you mentioned uh, we have a uh, Miss um, uh, Genia Lear Morgan. Oh, yes, that's me. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it, it's, a, it's a little inside joke about my name, if you haven't guessed already. <laughs> yes, I'm here. I'm here. But i got to tell you, the South and the Midwest rocks, right? Goodness Amen. gracious. So Amen. I am from St. Louis, Missouri, and I currently reside in Brooklyn, New York, and I am portraying Lithophane Pridgen, otherwise known as Faith, in the story, but um, she is lovingly known as, you know, by Fane or Fato, um, mm-hmm. for people mm-hmm. who know and love her. And mm-hmm. um, she is one of the special ladies in Jimmy's lives, definitely during um, Harlem around uh, 1963 and. Uh, how dare I put a label on it? Because you know she she was a very very um, confident and free woman, <laughs> so, and so um, you know no labels for her. But she's definitely a very special companion and a and a, a foxy lady uh, to Jimmy. So um, yeah. So uh, let's see what else can I share? Um, I know she is from. Yeah, is it okay if I talk a little bit about Shane? Because sure, I just, sure. yeah, just we lost her this year, earlier in April, and um, you know it was such an honor. Thank you so much, um, everybody, for having me here, and Jerome for inviting me and including me in this wonderful 
group of um, folks, fine folks here, but um, I got a chance to actually speak to her and get to know her. Mm-hmm. She was from uh, Moultrie, Georgia. Yes. <laughs> Moultrie, Georgia, which is mm-hmm. known as what is it, the Dirty Spoon? Yeah, the dirty spoon. I don't know if that's a topography thing or if that's something else. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, you know, coming up, her, you know, her birthday uh, was in May, but she didn't really know exactly when it was because of some things going on with the, the birth certificate. So she's either born in the middle of uh, middle of May or the end of May ish. And growing up, um, she had a colorful, you know, upbringing, uh, which is, you know, pretty interesting to find out, you know, pretty interesting and uh, shocking. But, you know, she made her way out and she um, caught, had company, kept company with the likes of, I uh, believe it was Little Willie John who had kicked off the whole um meeting of her and uh, Jimmy, maybe, perhaps, or Sam Cooke, or she kept company with Ed James and Sly Stone, and, and um, James Brown, coming from that area, was like her big brother, and so she being, um, she was just one to be bold and take chances and live and, you know, take risks and keep company and be in the company of um, some very fine folks. Um and serve as a muse, especially for for Jimmy. Mm-hmm. So that 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 that's fatal. I mean that that that's just the tip of the iceberg with um, beloved Miss Person. But uh, yeah, but that's that's where she came from. Yeah, she was known to travel to New York with uh, Little Willie John, who uh, maybe a lot of your listeners may not know, but maybe some of your uh, listeners who know a bit about rhythm and blues um, history. And maybe some of your older listeners may know he was one of those R&B singers of that time. And she, she said she traveled to New York with, with uh, Little Willie John. And uh, her mom didn't necessarily uh, like that, but she was coming out on her own. She came to New York as a very oh, yes. uh, young age. Yeah. And that was and very eloquent to say, Jerome, like she didn't like it. She, she, was not, <laughs> she, she was not here for any of it, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. But, you and, know, fame uh, had to be her. I told I told um 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 Genia. Um, um, <laughs> God, I'm gonna get it right, Genia. I told Genia. No, you said it right. Genia. Um, I told her that you know I really admired the fact that she called Little Fame because I'm I'm a, a proponent. I told her that one of my one of my 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 teachers was Lord Richards. Lord Richards directed. Uh, Raising in the Sun with Sidney Portier and Ruby Dee and, uh, and Donna Sands. He also directed uh, 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 August Wilson's first five plays on Broadway. And he um, invited uh, uh, August Wilson to the Eugene O'Neill Theater Conference. Eugene O'Neill uh, Theater Conference in Waterford, Connecticut. August Wilson had submitted his plays nine times and they finally invited him on the ninth at the ninth time, to come in and develop Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And, uh, but, um, uh, you know, um, Lord Richard, you tell us in class, he said, um, 
you ask yourself questions. You can't ask yourself enough questions. And if you're playing somebody who's living, go and plant yourself at their feet so you, you can, it can pour into you what it is. You're not trying to act like that person. You're not trying to talk like that person. You're not trying to be that person. If you allow them to pour into you who they are as it relates to the story, even if you sat on the stage on a chair and didn't say a word, everything that is poured into you will come out of you. Even if you walk across the stage and don't say a word, the fact that you research these characters, people can feel it and people can see it. So I applaud that she would call Little Fame Pridgen and have a conversation. And, uh, Absolutely. And, and, Thank and, you. And, and Little Fame um, uh, was amused that she said, whoops, so I said thank you for you know for calling me. I know I talked her ear off, but you know, and they had a few conversations. So I, I was just very Absolutely. proud of her as an artist who 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 went beyond to 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 get you know what she needed. And one other thing I may add, um, you know, thank thankfully so she was able to give me her 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 blessing because I want to make sure that I capture the essence and she said, "You know, you got it, girl. You know, you got it." So for her to tell me that means um, you know, the world to me. Especially in um a, a crew such as this and and what we're doing. So again, you know, Jerome, thank you so much for allowing me to uh you know, play and portray. And music-wise, um, Jimmy, I tell you, uh, I know I'm more of a hip-hop fan. Well, actually, I love all music, right? So with with this particular production and um, the very first time we did it, I was able to listen more to other music that I had not heard from Jimmy. And there are so many licks, and I've got, I'm into drummers, right? So um, there's this one drummer... Mitch Mitchell, who I guess was influenced by, again, a jazz great um, uh, John Coltrane, but his drummer, which is Elvin, Elvin Jones, I believe, and also Max Roach. So it just takes right. you down a whole rabbit hole of, of mm-hmm. musical history and, you know, time and current events and things that are happening that we just, that helps to lend to the time of the story that Jerome has um, captured here. And easily, I tell you, these ladies are something else, man. Woo, wait till you get to know them. With that said, Rome, you're stepping in. Uh, just let people know that we're going to be virtual, live and virtual, Friday, October 1st. Uh, on the West Coast, it'll be uh, 5 p.m. On the East Coast, it'll be 8 p.m. And uh, in order to get to the show, it's on my Rome Neal Banana Putting Jazz uh, YouTube channel. I'm so fortunate to have a channel. My I call it my own my own TV show. I do jazz at, once a month on that that channel, the Rome Neal Banana Putting Jazz Show. And um, now I get the opportunity to showcase my brother Jerome Preston Bates play plays on the channel and it's been a, a marvelous experience. So go to Rome Neal Banana Putting Jazz, Rome R O M E N E A L uh Banana, you know how to spell banana. Putting is P U D D I apostrophe N. 
because that's the way we eat banana pudding, the good banana pudding. You can go to Rome Neal's Facebook page and, and you'll see the link there. You can go to Rome, uh, uh, Rome's, uh, Jerome's Facebook page. You can see the link there. And there's mm-hmm. the Black Repertory Group has a, a Facebook page. You can see the link there. And you just click it and go straight to the play. Try to go earlier. Don't wait till the last minute. You know how we are sometimes. We wait till the last minute, and then complications come, and, if, mm-hmm. and you can't get to the link. But this, this is kind of straightforward, you know. So please tune mm-hmm. in and check us out on Friday, October 1st, as I, yeah, I get the opportunity to sit back. Not sit back. I'm working hard as the technical director, moving the actors in and out and making sure the visuals and the um, the sound is all Christine, for your entertainment pleasure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I may also add that Rome Neal, um, obviously, as you may have seen, uh, Sister Wanda, the incredible montage of photos in the beginning and the credits was just phenomenal. He played it in the beginning and he played it in the in the end um, also. Mm-hmm. And um, I came to this project through a Rome Neal's project called um, um, uh, Seven Jazzy Guitarists, and he invited me. <laughs> Uh, to do the monologues from Seven Guitars, and, and maybe some people know my history with that, having created the role of Floyd Barton, obviously Viola Davis and Ruben Santiago Hudson, and then eventually traveling to Broadway with it. But he asked me to come in and um, do some monologues with, with Seven Jazzy Guitarists, and one of the guitarists was Guy Davis, who's the um, son of Ruby Dionaji Davis, who's one of the most incredible blues uh uh, acoustic blues guitarist uh, today, and uh, um, but Dr. Mona uh, Scott um, heard that and had asked me, saying, "I heard you and you and Rome Neal had worked on some Jimmy Hendrix plays back in the day. Uh, could you bring that to the Black Repertory Group?" So uh, we're grateful to Dr. Mona Scott and uh, her son Sean Vaughn Scott. Uh, executive directors and artistic directors of the Black Repertory Theater in Berkeley, California, who has um, given us this platform to tell these stories. And uh, just just grateful for that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to let people know that I have also linked to the um, uh, the Banana Pudding um, uh, YouTube station channel and uh, and what you can do is you just go there, and what it'll do is if you register, it will remind you. So that's really nice. <laughs> yes, uh, so you don't have to think yes, about it. Subscribe. Yes, subscribe. Yeah, so, so that's really cool because that's what I did for, um, you know, the other uh, Jimi Hendrix um, piece. And this is, is this a trilogy? Um, it's like, is there one more or something like that? There's one more. Um, it's Jimmy's Slight Return. It was the first play I wrote about Jimi Hendrix. It may feel like a musical because we have a few musical numbers in it, but it was one of the first plays that I, I wrote about Jimi Hendrix. So uh, that's that would be the third one. We haven't decided uh, when we would uh, actually um, 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 put that up yet, but it's coming It's coming very, very shortly. Um, after sure. This. And, uh, that was the that was the one that I directed you uh, in at yes. Theater for the New City, right? Yes, it was. And let, let yeah. me tell you, Jerome played Jimi Hendrix in that play, and he was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Ever yeah. since that play, Jerome 
Preston Bates is my Jimi Hendrix. I don't care what he has grown to be at this point. How old he is or what, he is Jimi Hendrix in and out. He just just embodies him in that performance. That's kind of 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 you. I was I was a young kid, and I, I tell you, that 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 that, that brother, uh, he touched my spirit with those songs. And, I mean, I, I grew up, I was listening to Jackson 5 and my, the Jackson 5 and, and James Brown and Aretha Franklin and Motown. I didn't know nothing about a Jimi Hendrix or Jimmy Who or Jimmy Weatherspoon or what, a Jimmy what, Jimmy Slide or Jimmy Clyde. I didn't know anything about a Jimi Hendrix. But I, uh, you know, I, uh, I was sitting in Augusta, Georgia with my high school girlfriend, her her uh, sister's boyfriend came from the Navy, and he came in with all these albums. Back in that day, we would listen to vinyls, and he had mm-hmm. Slide of Family Stone, I Can Tina Turner, he had Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, and he had the Band of Gypsies. And I'm like, I heard about that guy, and I put that thing on, man, and I tell you, I, I graduated, I mean, from listening to the yeah, Jackson right. Five to listening to uh, Jimi Hendrix. So, uh, you know, I'm uh, – and, and Rome uh, – Rome, um, was 